And so that established the disease as chronic wasting disease, one of the spongiform diseases. Now, there are other forms of spongiform disease. Domestic sheep is one called scrapie. There's one called bovine spongiform encephalopathy that we find in cattle. There's a mink transmissible encephalopathy found in mink. And there's one in cats called feline transmissible encephalopathy. Uh, in people, it's called uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Among the foray people in New Guinea who began to suffer from a disease that they called Kuru. And Kuru turned out to be a variant of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease that those people picked up and the disease became more prevalent and more condensed because of some ritualistic cannibalism. Hello, New Mexico. James Pittman here with the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. Well, last month we talked all about deer management in New Mexico. And in that episode, we briefly touched on chronic wasting disease check stations. And I thought it would be a good time to do an episode that talked in more detail about CWD and other wildlife diseases and, and really all things wildlife health. So to help us with that today, we have the department's wildlife health specialist, Dr. Carrie Mauer. Carrie, thanks for joining us today. Yes, James, good to be with you. Well, Carrie, before we dive into all things wildlife health, tell us a little bit about you. Where where are you from originally? Well, James, my ancestry all goes back to the uh, pioneers that came from Scandinavia and Europe into into Utah where I was born. Wow. Uh, my high school days were in uh, Wyoming. So so it was Wyoming when I was a youngster that I learned to love hunting and fishing and I lived during that time of my life just from hunting season to hunting season. And that, uh, that again, was in Wyoming. Very cool. Very cool. Well, what about that time between Wyoming and ending up at New Mexico Game and Fish? What, what, what were you doing then? Well, I spent probably too much time in a number of colleges. <laughs> uh, prior to joining uh, Game and Fish, I went to school at Utah State University with a degree in, in biology. I went down to Brigham Young University from Logan, Utah, and, and there I got a master's degree in, in zoology. And from there, uh, I went to Ohio State University, where I got a, a Ph.D. That degree was in their department of animal science, although my work there was with white-tailed deer and uh, nuisance browsing damage in orchards. Well, how, how did you go from that to, to New Mexico? Oh, James, I was I was almost done with my Ph.D. In, at Ohio State, and I ran across uh, an ad. They wanted some people to work on contract for Game and Fish, and it was to help uh, collect and analyze data. The Game and Fish Department at the time was trying to develop sort of a comprehensive model for deer populations to uh, help analyze the populations and determine hunting pressure and numbers of licenses. So I, I put a bid on that contract, came to New Mexico. During that time, I, I finished writing my dissertation. And then as I began to apply for jobs, Game and Fish offered me a position. And that's the job 
James, that I am still in. I never wow. have worked in a different job other than the one I have for Game and Fish. Wow. Wow. So, so how long did you do contract work before you got on full time? I did. I worked on contract about three and a half years. Nice. And came on full time. What what year would that be? Uh, the very beginning of 1994. Wow. Wow. So, so a, a long career with Game and Fish as the wildlife health specialist. Yeah. So and it's been good. It's been it's been highly interesting, and that's why I kind of never was interested in any of the other jobs. Nice. Nice. So tell us a little bit about that position and just kind of a quick overview of what all you do. My, my duties have changed a little bit over the years, uh, but at this point, I kind of see my job in three big categories. A lot of people don't know, but I spent quite a bit of time. I make sure that all of the information about the various hunts is correct in the database that controls uh, the draw, the draw hunts. And so that takes uh, quite a bit of time and attention during certain seasons. Uh, The second thing that I do is to uh, manage the distribution and the use within the the department of uh, medications for wildlife and especially the controlled substances that we often use for chemical capture of wildlife. Part of that is to ensure that our licensing is correct and that the way we administer uh, those medications and drugs is within the law. And then the third area is, as we've talked about, I I manage all things uh, wildlife health within the department. And that kind of entails uh, surveillance monitoring of wildlife health uh, as well as uh, diagnostics and uh, investigation and uh, every once in a while we'll have a situation where management might be possible it's often not possible to manage those diseases but every once in a while there is something that we can do to sort of manage things and and do something for the wildlife that's a very diverse job yeah and it's interesting it's very interesting so it's often like solving a mystery, and that kind of has kept my attention and, and my interest over these years. So along those lines, diving into wildlife diseases and, and wildlife health, over your years in this position, what are kind of the main diseases or, or parasites and things like that that you have worked with here in New Mexico? Well, the... I, I think that it's a fairly broad spectrum. There is there is one thing about uh, New Mexico that is kind of interesting, and it's that our arid climate in New Mexico kind of helps both livestock and wildlife be in control and not be overrun by many of the parasites that affect different parts of the country. And so there are some parasites that I have worked with, and that we run across, but I think that our parasitic diseases are probably uh, not as numerous and not as serious as in other places, especially those areas where humidity is is higher, uh, weather and weather is warmer. But I have uh, worked with a number of cases of of mange. We've got we've got three different types of mange caused by different kinds of mites that I've worked with over my career. 
Uh, and incidentally, uh, one of those types of mange was what was responsible for uh, decimating and eliminating uh, all of the bighorn sheep that were remnants of the indigenous sheep that were on white sands up until the mid-1990s. Uh, really? Yes, that caused the demise of those that remnant uh, population of indigenous desert bighorn sheep. Uh, the mange mites caused a bad reaction, and they were quite active in the animal's ears, which would then get uh, full of pus and, and dead skin cells and material. And then the, the sheep couldn't hear predators, and they also uh, were affected in their equilibrium. So some of them fell to their death. Many of the rest were, were taken by predators until, until there was one left, one bighorn sheep left, uh, which they took into captivity. We held until we eventually repopulated uh, that area. And then that remaining ewe was turned loose as we as we repopulated the area with bighorn. Is Maine still a concern for that herd? Well, I think that it is. And I say I think because we haven't seen it. But I think because it was so serious back then, and we really never did establish how it got there and where it was from, I think that, that we always have to be really vigilant with those animals to, to watch them closely. But as I mentioned... Uh, so far, so good. No further mange cases, but it has to remain a concern because of how it devastated the animals before. So that's something that you're monitoring as part of your job? Yeah, we keep track of that. I run across tapeworms in game fairly regularly, not heavy loads of them, but uh, tapeworms form a little bladder-like cyst often in the in the skeletal muscle, and, and hunters run across that once in a while, wonder what it is, and and so we see that. I've seen those little bladder-like cysts of the tapeworm larvae also in uh, livers of, of our animals. So we deal with those a little bit. For any types of parasites, is that something that hunters should be concerned about? They should be concerned about it, mainly so that when they take their game meat home, so that they cook it well, they need to cook it well, and... I think that for hunters, it's not a bad idea to wear gloves as they process and field dress their animals. And there are some there are some diseases that can be aerosolized. They are rather obscure. The risk is very very low. But things like tuberculosis can be picked up in droplets of blood and and breathed in. The other disease that could be pretty pretty uh, serious for people that has not been in New Mexico wildlife, but has been in wildlife uh, in other states, uh, and that's the disease uh, anthrax, which also could be aerosolized. And so if you are really concerned about that, you could wear a mask. But that's not something you've actually seen here in New Mexico. No. Anthrax has been diagnosed in livestock. It was a long time ago, but anthrax and anthrax bacteria does exist in New Mexico. It is here, but it's rarely ever uh, a problem. Rabies and tularemia are also two other diseases that hunters should be aware of, especially tularemia and, and rabbits and small game. Uh, that's, that can be a risk to hunters, and, and handling small game and rabbits, uh, hunters really should always wear gloves when they do that. Are there visible signs uh, that hunters should be aware of, or, or not really? 
Uh, not not really. Those animals can be sick, but oftentimes they'll be carrying tularemia and it, and it won't be visible. And the tularemia bacteria might also be harbored in fleas or mites that are ectoparasites of, of rabbits and then can move from the rabbits or the squirrels uh, onto the bodies of the hunters. But it's just a bacteria. It's a bacteria, yeah. And then the other thing you mentioned there was rabies. On rabies... Rabies is sort of a, uh, a zoonotic disease that is a threat to to everyone. And uh, rabies is often harbored in our small carnivores, most notably skunks and foxes and sometimes raccoons. And then it can affect bobcats once in a while. But those animals that really do keep it going are mainly skunks and foxes in New Mexico. And any mammal can get it, but those small carnivorous animals and bobcats, coyotes, when they act aggressive or they act uh, really, really passive, rabies should always be a risk that we think about and test for. Is that common in New Mexico? It's more common, I think, than most people think. I would say on the average, I probably deal with one to three cases of positive rabies uh, every year. Now, within the state, the the number of animals tested and test positive for rabies varies statewide across many different species, but that probably numbers anywhere from three to a couple dozen in the whole state uh, every year. No prevalence in southern parts versus northern parts or anything like that? We have pockets. We have areas where rabies has been particularly prevalent over the years. Uh, some of the hot spots in the past have been the Silver City area in foxes, the Carlsbad area in foxes and and uh, domestic dogs, and then Colfax County a couple of years ago with a large population of skunks that tested positive uh, for rabies. Wow. Wow. Well, kind of moving back to to big game, tell us a little bit about EHD and blue tongue and and things like that are those are those found in New Mexico? So EHD is always uh, a concern for big game in in all states. So in in New Mexico, I have suspected EHD has existed here, uh, but I I wasn't able to to really confirm it until the year 2016. In 2016, we had a breakout of EHD hemorrhagic disease among mule deer down around Carlsbad. And so uh, we had that diagnosed and what we found was that it was a brand new variant uh, that had moved into the state uh, carried by gnats and that's why we had some mortality. Now, on the southern tier of New Mexico, it's a little bit different with the HD down there and that's because the uh, gnats and the gnats that are out they don't disappear for very long. And so the wildlife is exposed to the hemorrhagic disease virus fairly regularly. And so normally we don't see EHD down there at, at all because they're constantly exposed to it. So it's kind of not like getting a COVID shot and a COVID booster, but it's like getting an EHD shot and then an EHD booster quite often. They kind of keep their immunity up because they get exposed uh, continually. 
Well, I have seen a couple of outbreaks in Unit 34 among white-tailed deer, and, and I was able finally to confirm uh, EHD in Unit 34 around the 16 Springs area, and I had thought it was there. The other thing that that happens with EHD in New Mexico uh, happens within the Class A game parks, and uh, what I've seen there uh, is when the game park owners buy uh, breeding stock that comes from far north, they bring it south into New Mexico when they put those animals uh, loose in their game parks. Often the local animals have immunity to our local strains of EHD, but those northern animals don't, and they've not been exposed. And so I've seen actually a number of these imported, very valuable animals uh, die of EHD on these Class A game parks. Wow. Wow. But but in general and overall, uh, EHD has not been uh, as serious a problem in New Mexico as it often is in the southeast and Midwest. What what about blue tongue? That's kind of similar to EHD, right? Yeah, blue tongue is is similar, but the viruses are very similar. So when I when I have one tested for, I have the other one also tested for. They are not the same virus, and they don't consider them variants of the same virus, but they are close enough that that I test for each. So classic blue tongue, uh, I have only found once over my career and that was a uh, that was a deer that was held in in one of the small local zoos in New Mexico so even though I test for it with every single EHD test I, I only have that single positive case of blue tongue but we always are watching for it well I kind of want to talk a little bit about 2020 because while we had the pandemic, there were also some things going on in the wildlife health world. I remember towards the beginning of 2020, you were working, investigating large numbers of, of rabbit mortalities. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was uh, that was an, an interesting outbreak because it really, it became, and it's still ongoing, it became a, uh, a national and then an international uh, outbreak. But the first reports happened right here in New Mexico. Uh, in the early part of 2020, in February, I began to get phone calls about large numbers of dead rabbits on the landscape. Uh, I couldn't get to them fast enough to get any of the carcasses picked up. They're small animals. They decay really fast, even when it's cold. And so I, I couldn't get any of any of these carcasses. People would call me, but they had left the carcasses behind in the field. These reports came from down around uh, Deming and Las Cruces. When I was finally uh, able to get some carcasses, uh, I took them to the lab, and my thought uh, was was uh, tularemia because that's a that's a disease that's uh, commonly found on on rabbits and rodents. So I turned uh, I turned in a, a large batch of rabbits for tularemia testing, and it came back negative, which was a surprise to me. And uh, following that, that negative test, uh, within, within a couple of days, uh, we got a test back in the state that was positive for rabbit hemorrhagic disease. 
uh, which has been a disease in domestic rabbits. Uh, it it uh, has broken out a number of times since 1980, usually in the large commercial uh, rabbit production facilities in the Midwest. And a perceptive veterinarian uh, was called on, on domestic rabbit mortalities in Carlsbad, and, and that veterin- veterinarian uh, sent those samples in to be tested for rabbit hemorrhagic disease, and it came back positive. So then subsequent to that, of course, that was a big shock to wildlife biologists and also rabbit producers because it was thought that rabbit hemorrhagic disease didn't affect wild rabbits, only the domestic rabbits, which descend from European rabbits. So when when it was found in, in wild rabbits, that, that, of course, raised a lot of concern. So further testing revealed that this rabbit hemorrhagic disease was a... Uh, a new variant, a different variant. And then as I picked up uh, more rabbits, uh, we we submitted those and, and those were confirmed positive with rabbit hemorrhagic disease. So I watched the disease move from southern New Mexico up the eastern border of New Mexico. Uh, and then we had quite a bit of it in central New Mexico, uh, especially in the Albuquerque, Santa Fe area. Uh, and then it moved up uh, a little bit up in northwest New Mexico. Uh, but it wasn't long until until Arizona, Texas, Utah, Colorado, and then eventually uh, Wyoming, Idaho, California, and the northwest uh, submitted rabbits, and Canada uh, submitted rabbits, uh, all positive for rabbit hemorrhagic disease. So that, that went a long way. It, it still pops up now and then. I've I had uh, two tests this spring that were positive for rabbit hemorrhagic disease, both around Santa Fe, but I haven't had any more reports since then. Okay. So that's a, a disease that probably, for the time being, has run the worst of its course for now. Well, and we had talked about EHD, which is a hemorrhagic disease, and this is a hemorrhagic disease. So are those similar, and what exactly is a hemorrhagic disease? Well, hemorrhagic diseases are, are diseases that cause a lot of internal bleeding on the uh, the organs of the animals. And so when you look uh, on the inside of the animals, you'll see uh, spots of hemorrhage on their internal organs. Now, with, with uh, EHD, you also see vesicles and hemorrhage in the, the mouths of the animals, and those are of concern because because it it can be similar to vesicular stomatitis, a disease that is is reportable and quite serious when it gets in into especially horses. So so that's one of the concerns with EHD. Also with EHD, you see some other things. You see some sloughing of the uh, the linings of the stomachs, the chambers of the stomachs in ruminants, and you also see them. Slough the uh, the sheaths of their hooves, and so right at the uh, the coronary band, a lot of times that hard material that forms the outside of the hoof will start to peel away and then fall away from the feet. It's quite a nasty disease. Rabbit hemorrhagic disease doesn't have any any outward effects other than some bleeding and mucus discharge. But then uh, on the inside, they see the the bleeding and and the spotting on the organs where the bleeding has happened on the inside. 
Well, you, you had mentioned hooves there. I, I know that some states have problems with, with hoof disease in, in their wildlife species. Do we have any problems with that in New Mexico? Well, not not like they do uh, in, in the state of Washington, where those animals uh, have a disease of the hoof that causes uh, it's a, it's a, a hairy growth on the, the hooves of the animals, and, uh, and it's found mostly in elk. It, it causes uh, pain for the elk, often eventually, eventually die of this disease. But no, we don't have that, thank goodness, here. Okay. We're, we're lucky there. Well, back to the wonderful year of, of 2020. So early in the year, you were dealing with rabbit mortalities. And then later in the year, you kind of had to deal a lot with some migratory songbird mortality. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. And you're right. 2020 was an eventful year. I think most people will will remember in 2020, in about uh, mid-September, actually a little bit before the 15th of September, we had that nasty, nasty uh, winter storm that came through New Mexico where temperatures uh, dropped down into the 20s with highs during the day of only around freezing and then rain and wind and, and snow and as that storm passed by uh, we began to get a lot of reports of uh, large numbers of songbirds dead in people's yards and to the sides of, of roads and so we kind of jumped on that and took some days uh, and traveled all through New Mexico uh, picking up these carcasses I think that we accumulated, uh, and this was just responding to people who had called in, I believe we collected uh, over 400 uh, carcasses of dead birds. Wow. The interesting thing is that most of these birds were insectivorous, insectivorous songbirds and uh, insectivorous uh, raptors, and a number of insectivorous uh, owls as well uh, we picked up. We sent those off to the National Wildlife Health Center in Madison, Wisconsin, and so we we got uh, we didn't send them all, but we we sent we sent large numbers, and then at the at the health center they chose sub samples of what we we sent them and and did uh, some testing and, and necropsy on those on those birds. Uh, they tested a number of things, including uh, avian influenza and pox virus. Uh, and and in the end, they did not uh, find any uh, contagious disease among the animals. But many of the animals were were very dehydrated, uh, very emaciated, and and many of them had inflammation in the lung tissue. And of course, during this time, a lot of people were giving us feedback and 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 speculation about why that might be. Of course, we knew that the storm put them down, but uh, but there there probably were were some underlying reasons to that, and we were trying to to make to make sure and rule out anything that might be uh, contagious to to a population level or something uh, even worse, something that could cause uh, a large collapse of many spe- many species of birds. Uh, but we didn't we didn't find that, and uh, so in the end, uh, we found all of these birds uh, that were that were undernourished and dehydrated. 
that can lead to a number of the other maladies that they saw in the in the tissues of the birds, including uh, the inflamed lungs. But a lot of people uh, speculated that it could have happened, it could have been caused even by uh, the large wildfires that burned in the West just prior to that, and, and I can't rule that out uh, either. And perhaps that contributed to the inflammation that we saw in the lung, the lung tissue. And it may have caused those birds to have to fly farther out around these areas of smoke. Who knows? Yeah. But they did, they did come into New Mexico in poor condition, uh, unable to, to land and, and, uh, and become nourished and, and hydrated. And so many, many of them, uh, did die. Now, one thing I had noticed during the fall, during that late, late summer and early fall last year, 2020, was that uh, on the highways, I was seeing large numbers of, of migrant birds, larger than I usually do. And so I, I also think that, uh, that it was a good year for, for nestlings and that uh, as, the, as the populations were, were flying on their southern migration, that there were large, larger than average numbers of birds that were, that were in flight and migrating at the same time. So that was a, that was a big event. That was one of the more dramatic mortality events I've uh, had the privilege to investigate during my career. But so it's not always disease. In this case, starvation. Yeah. Well, what about other things that you hear about, like blue-green algae and loco weed and things like that? Can you tell us a little bit about those and how wildlife are killed by those? Well, yeah, let me tell you two stories. Let me condense the two stories. But uh, many people might remember that in 2013, we had a report of an elk mortality in northeast New Mexico on private land. Uh, when I went up, up onto that ranch, those animals had been dead for a day, probably, when I got there. And the weather was warm, and the smell was really strong when I got there. And the two ranch hands were having a hard time hanging on to their lunches. And so, so I, I asked those guys if they would just wander these ridgetops and count as many dead elk as they could. And they counted 113 uh, dead elk. Wow. So uh, I think somewhere between 113 and, and 120 elk died uh, all at once there on that, on that ridgetop. So when I visited with the lab, one of the things the pathologist said uh, to me that I've always remembered, and it's that when you find a large number of animals dead in a concentrated area, you really should look for a point source of mortality and often a toxin. And uh, so with those animals, uh, we ran many, many tests. We looked for lots of things, including... Uh, EHD, which you and I have already talked about, it was exactly the right season for for EHD. In the end, we did find uh, toxins in the water that are produced by by blue green algae, and so so in the carcasses of the animals, we couldn't establish it positively uh, because there's not not a test and not a way to do that, uh, but but we did find it in the water. And so I was very, very careful in the way that I announced our conclusion, and I was careful to, to state that game and fish 
had concluded that the cause of that mortality was blue-green algae or uh, often called cyanobacteria. Uh, those two terms mean the same thing. And uh, still today, uh, especially with the increasing importance of cyanobacteria in water sources, that still makes more sense than anything else to have killed all of those elk all at once in a single area. And we looked at uh, we looked at other possible sources of toxin and including plants, flowers, and and things that might be blooming at the time. We didn't find we just didn't find anything else. So our conclusion has remained that those animals must have been killed by the cyanobacteria. There's some other uh, details that go along with that. I think that that support that conclusion. Uh, the other the other case I think uh, was the most the most fun case to investigate of my career, and and I say that because it involved the cooperation of of a number of different people, and that was uh, a couple of years ago we began to get reports of of dead elk again in this one area, but they weren't dead all at once. The the uh, mortality was spread over uh, weeks. And so, again, it's hard to get to those carcasses when they're fresh, but when we did, uh, we collected tissues. Uh, but one of the things that I also collected because I was worried about about uh, toxic plants was rumen content. And as I took the rumen content out of some of these carcasses, I saw in it uh, these these large leaves, large leathery leaves that were in, in larger chunks than, than the rest of the material in the rumen. And so when we got back the rumen analysis, they found in the rumens oleander, which is a plant toxic to, to elk. Uh, so the pathologist and I visited about that, uh, and then I took it back to the conservation officers or game wardens who had first responded to the calls of the public about, about these dead animals, and they began to go door-to-door and place to place looking for uh, oleander. And it took some time, but uh, they found it. And they found they found an area where uh, a, a homeowner had been cleaning out the yard and, and removing oleander from the yard and uh, hauling it out and leaving it in a pile. So the pathology report mentioned both dried oleander and green oleander leaves. And so this person we found had taken out both old oleander and the growing oleander. This was down around Artesia. Oleander is uh, is an ornamental that doesn't grow uh, up in northern New Mexico, but it does down in the south. And uh, our conservation officers uh, from down around Alamogordo uh, went out, gathered it all up, and loaded it in their trucks and hauled it to a place where elk couldn't get to it and the mortality stopped. So that was a, a real interesting case because it was a mystery and we got to the bottom of it. And then uh, with help of everybody involved, we, we were able to, to remove the danger and uh, remove the risk to, to the local elk down there. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that was. Well, we've kind of talked about a lot of different diseases and, and parasites and then and then other things that, that can cause wildlife mortality, but we haven't really hit on CWD yet. So can you tell us a little bit about 
what CWD is and how or when did it even come about? All right. So CWD has really uh, dominated the bigger part of my whole career. Uh, CWD is, uh, is a disease of members of the deer family around here. That means uh, deer and elk. Colorado, it means also moose. In uh, Europe, it has been found in reindeer. It was first described as a disease, as, as a syndrome. It was called wasting syndrome in the experimental elk held at a facility in uh, Fort Collins, uh, Colorado. Uh, it, was, it was officially described in the, li- in the literature in 1967. So it had probably been around for some time before that. Uh, if we want to pinpoint a date, we'll use 1967. It was in 1978 that Beth Williams, a graduate student uh, at Colorado State University working at the pathology lab there, recognized in the brain tissue of those deer that wasting disease was one disease of a category of diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, or TSEs. And, uh, and so that established established the disease as chronic wasting disease, one of the spongiform diseases. Now, there are uh, other forms of spongiform disease. In sheep, domestic sheep is one called uh, scrapie. There's one called bovine spongiform encephalopathy that we find in, in cattle, uh, often referred to as mad cow disease. There's a mink transmissible encephalopathy found in mink. Uh, there And there's one in cats called feline transmissible encephalopathy and a couple other uh, obscure ones. In people, there are a couple of forms. Uh, in people, it's called uh, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. There's a form that just happens every once in a while. They call it sporadically, just happens for no known uh, reason. And all of these diseases, once... Once a person or an animal has a, a spongiform disease, it will always be fatal. There's no prevention and there is uh, no treatment for any of the diseases in, in this category. People, uh, this Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease called CJD, the most interesting story of, of that one is uh, among the foray people in New Guinea who began to suffer from a disease that they called Kuru. And Kuru turned out to be a variant of Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease uh, that those people picked up and the disease became more prevalent and more condensed uh, because of, of some ritualistic cannibalism that was practiced in that, uh, that tribe of people wow. at the time. And, and so they became known that this, uh, that this disease was prevalent among those people and, and the study of that disease and, and those people uh, led to at least two uh, Nobel Prizes in, in medicine uh, back in the 1960s. And wow. so that was, uh, that was quite a deal. Uh, but but uh, in deer and elk, first described in 1967 and defined in 1978, and first found and diagnosed in New Mexico in... 2002, and that was a, uh, a poor emaciated deer 
collected in the cantonment area of White Sands Missile Range. That came back uh, positive. Uh, and then with more testing and more surveillance, we found more wasting disease uh, around the cantonment area uh, of White Sands and then up into the west facing slopes of the Oregon Mountains. And then eventually we found a case in Timberon, New Mexico. And from there we began to, to track it and found it farther up in Unit uh, 34. And then eventually in the foothills of the Sacramento's in Game Management Unit 28. So as it stands right now, we have confirmed wasting disease in those three game management units, 19, 28, and 34. And that, that's been since uh, 2002. So the cumulative total of positive tests for wasting disease uh, stands in the 70s right now. And so that's really not very many positive tests for that many years. And uh, so it's, it's not a common, it's not a common disease. It's not prevalent. It's not prevalent I, in uh, unit 34 and in unit 19 and possibly seems to even, if not steady, be slightly declining. I haven't had a positive test out of unit 19 for some years now, but for some reason the prevalence uh, has increased in unit 28 fairly consistently on McGregor range from year to year I am getting between three and six positive tests uh, from the the harvested deer uh, out of McGregor every single year there's an elk hunt there as well but I haven't found any positive elk on McGregor with wasting and are all hunters, deer and elk, in the units where CWD has been found required to get their harvest tested? No. We're, we're requiring it only in Unit 19 because that's such a small hunt. And also on the, the uh, Unit 28 hunts. That's where it's mandatory. And part of that is because uh, it's a small hunt. We can manage it, and particularly for Unit 28. There's really one main uh, entryway onto McGregor Range, and so we can set up a collection station for hunters and service them as they exit from their hunt. But in Unit 34, where we have we have so many thousands of of hunters with so many routes in and out, uh, we have not made it mandatory there. It's it's completely voluntary. But you uh, do have check stations around during the hunts. We do, we do during the larger hunts where we're expecting. Uh, larger numbers of animals to be harvested. So right now I'm keeping that station located right at the intersection just outside of Cloudcroft, turns down towards Sunspot and Timberon. There's a junction right there, a wide spot in the road. And so that's where we're doing our collection during the Unit 34 hunts. Do you have any other check stations that you monitor around the state? We also conduct a station... I call them collection stations because it's not really it's not really law enforcement. It's just to to collect tissue from from hunters who are voluntary about it. So I I always like to run one in the the latest hunt in Unit Two B, and that's because at that time I've got a lot of uh, deer that come down from Colorado uh, to that area, 
And so, so that seems to, if we're, if, if we get it up there, uh, from deer, it'll be from Colorado deer moving southward into New Mexico. And so I like to keep track of that hunt. But you haven't uh, seen I, it there yet. No, yeah, no, have not detected it there. And I, and I've tested animals from there just about every single year since 2002. So I consistently test there. I have tested the deer from up around the Brazos area, south of Chama, and I am able to check once in a while uh, with the harvested animals out of Unit 30. And so those are the areas where I've kept uh, an active collection station. I should mention that any abnormal deer or elk that we pick up, either dead or that we euthanize for for testing of anything, we run a test for CWD along with any other testing that we do. So any animal that's a suspect for anything, we test for CWD. So what are you actually collecting from the animal when you take a sample? We need two pieces of anatomy. Uh, I need the brain stem, so the very, very uh, base of the brain where the brain turns into the spinal column, and I need a lymph node from the head of the animal. They are they're called the uh, the retropharyngeal lymph nodes, uh, and and it's those two pieces of anatomy that I need. And you had mentioned earlier that you need to get two carcasses when uh, when that carcass is still fresh. So so how long are those samples viable after after a harvest? Uh, so the best answer to that question is as long as that tissue holds together, I can use it. So even if the brain uh, is a little bit autolyzed and just a bit soft, uh, if it holds together and I can take out that portion of the brain stem, I can use it. It usually, in the warm weather, will be completely soft, too soft, in 24 hours. Uh, but in cold weather... Or if we keep that head on ice, uh, we can keep the tissues intact for, for at least a couple of days. And sometimes, if it's real cool, uh, even up to three or four days. Okay. Okay. And we had talked about check stations, but if there's a hunter that wants to have a harvest tested, is that something that can be done in the office or by a officer in the field or anything like that? Yes. So, so we'll make every effort for any hunter that would like the animal tested. And furthermore, we invite all hunters uh, who have made a harvest to come by a game and fish office during business hours, and we will take uh, those tissues for testing. Or if if, uh, if they can get into contact with their local game warden, the game wardens can also uh, take those tissues, preserve them, and turn them into me, and we'll run the tests on them then. So, so it is voluntary, but we're anxious to to test as many as we can because that helps us perform surveillance over a greater part of the state. Okay, okay, and and along those lines, you you do an incentive drawing as well, right, for people that have harvest tested. That's correct. So. Anybody, even even if it's mandatory, so all hunters who present a head for us to test, 
along with the, the tissues, will collect that hunter's personal information. And then at the end of the of the uh, of the season, right? I actually I usually do it in June, right after the main draw. All of those hunters who have presented the head go into a pool, and we draw two names from from the pool of of cooperating hunters, and we award an authorization for a Vivi doll bull elk hunt and an authorization for one of the premier oryx hunts. And so to clarify that terminology, the uh, the authorization is not a license, but it allows the hunter to go to any game and fish office, present the authorization, and then buy that uh, oryx license or, or the elk license at, at the standard fee. Now, Normally, to draw those hunts, uh, it's a once-in-a-lifetime draw, but when, when we award it as an incentive, uh, that person can continue to apply because it will not count against uh, that person's allocation of a once-in-a-lifetime hunt. Well, that's a pretty good reason to, to get your harvest tested. Yeah, it, it is. It's a, it's a really good reason. And so since this is going out to the public, I'll just kind of mention that that the pool of hunters that uh, that brings a head in for us to test uh, usually numbers 500 or or fewer. So it's your your odds in a drawing are pretty good in this one. Wow, wow! Hopefully our listeners bring some heads heads for you to sample. Yes, yeah, we'll continue that. Well, speaking of samples, so I, I know you don't get very many positives, but the positives that you do get. What is your recommendation to those hunters? Okay. Uh, first of all, when I get a positive test, uh, that's always a hunter that has presented a head, and I've got that hunter's information because we collected it at the time. So I will make a telephone call uh, to that person and make sure that I visit with that person, uh, and I do that myself. Uh, so that I can visit with them and a- answer answer questions, uh, and and again, it's it's not that much work because it's not very many phone calls. But I'll make a personal phone call, and also I do that so that when I make results public, then those hunters uh, who have harvested a positive animal uh, have the information before I make a general announcement. So this is what I tell hunters, and 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 of course, the question always is, uh, can I eat the meat? And, and so I want, I want hunters to know two things. Uh, number one, we know that the disease has been, uh, in the wild, uh, since, since the 1960s, maybe before. Uh, and, and we know that many, many, many of those animals, uh, have been over the years harvested and consumed by humans. And so at this point in time, there's never been a documented case of any hunter contracting the disease from eating a positive animal. So that's uh, that's unknown at this time. The second thing that I, I want people to know is that the CDC recommendation is that uh, any hunter with an animal known to be positive for chronic wasting disease, that they are, are advised and recommended not to consume that meat. And so so uh, we kind of, our recommendation uh, uh, has to be kind of in line with 
with those CDC recommendations, which which are conservative uh, recommendations for keeping people safe. Sure. So basically, why why take the risk? That's right. Now there are people who choose to to uh, take the risk anyway, but I want I want everybody uh, who wonders to to know those two facts, and then if they choose to take the risk, they they certainly may. Now let's say that I receive one of those calls. Yeah. And and I've harvested an elk that is CWD positive. Yeah. Can I just throw the meat out in the ditch, or is there a certain way it should be disposed of? Well, uh, we would we would rather have it disposed of uh, in in a responsible way. So so with an animal known to have the disease, we would like those animals to be to be uh, either placed in a landfill, and that is that uh, a landfill that handles carcasses and meat, uh, not all do, but that is a recognized way to dispose of these animals. Uh, but uh, we will also, if a person wants and, and would like to, to bring that material to Game and Fish in Santa Fe, I'll put that in a special crematory that we operate and, and incinerate it that way. Okay. Okay. Well, kind of along the lines of harvested game, this has all been really fascinating to me, and I think it, I think it's really fascinating to most of our listeners. But if we do have some listeners that are like, oh my goodness, there's all these different diseases and parasites, and I, I don't want to hunt anymore. Yeah. Your, your yeah. recommendation is, is basically to be safe and wear, wear gloves. And and what what is your recommendation? So so I think I think that if you're if you're really really wanting to minimize all risk, then then I would uh, wear exam gloves as I process the game, and I would I would we're all kind of gotten we we have all kind of gotten used to wearing a mask during COVID, so it's not that big of a deal to to wear a mask, and and then when I'm all done to to wash my hands real well. Uh, and then at the time that I cook the game, I would make sure to get it out, up to the recommended temperatures for poultry and, and red meat, get it up to the right temperature and make sure that, that it is uh, cooked well. And beyond that, we're pretty safe. And so all of these things that we've, that we've talked about are very, uh, very safe in meat that has been cooked well and is cooked until it's done. People are just fine. Uh, the viruses, most of the viruses that uh, the wildlife carry, are inactivated, and and furthermore, don't pose a threat to humans to begin with. And so those those are inactivated. Bacteria are are killed, and so people are are pretty safe to do that. And I'm anxious for people uh, who hunt and take game home to be able to uh, enjoy a meat and a product. That's at least as wholesome, if not more, than the meat that they would buy at the supermarket. Sure, sure. Well, that's that is good to know. So, in wrapping up, is is there anything else that you would like the folks listening to know about wildlife diseases or the wildlife health program in general? I, I think I think I would like people to know that in New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, we're concerned. We monitor these conditions. 
uh, we take management action if needed and if we can, and uh, we try to be aware of what's going on. And people with questions, we invite them to call and contact us. I'm working on on a case even as we speak, uh, pictures that I've been sent uh, today from a hunter. Uh, and so we're working, th- we we're working through that and we would like, uh, we would like to keep people safe and where there's no risk, we would like people to feel secure and, and enjoy these products. And furthermore, that wildlife disease is something that exists and is out there along with, uh, with agricultural disease. And it's not anything that needs to keep any of us up. Uh, overnight that's good advice good advice well carrie i think we're about out of time all right all right james really appreciate you joining us and and giving us some really fascinating information on wildlife diseases and and wildlife health here in new mexico yeah good yeah yeah pleasure to visit with you today well thanks again and thank you all for tuning in and listening today be sure and check out our other episodes and the monthly e-newsletters and get outside and enjoy all the outdoor recreation opportunities that New Mexico has to offer. We'll see you next time.